Welcome to another conversation. It's John and I here with Stanley Livingston. Livingston, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you guys? I'm doing great. I went I'm back and revisited uh, My Three Sons today because I hadn't oh, seen Oh, really? All 380 before. episodes? No, no, no. <laughs> just, just a couple Poor at the guy. beginning. I think I'm going to go through the series as soon as I'm done with Family Ties because I like to have a sitcom that I can rely on while I'm watching some of the other more dense shows that are out now. So I yeah, think that's going to be my next one. Well, that was a pretty durable show. Uh, just celebrated its uh, 60th anniversary on TV on September 29th. So uh, I guess it's not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> well, we'll get into that in just a minute. So you've lived in California your whole life? Yeah, born and raised. I was born in Hollywood, Hollywood Presbyterian hospital uh grew up on the streets of hollywood and pretty much been in southern california my whole life and hollywood i'd say about 65 years of it awesome uh so what made you want to get into acting at such a young age like was it something that you wanted um, to do? Your parents take you for an audition no it's something i think i was drawn to you know right from the moment i started school um you know i just knew i wanted to be in all the shows singing and dancing and making a fool out of myself. And I think my parents saw that and they probably had no idea about how to do it professionally. I went to a swim school in Hollywood when I was really young. And uh, it turned out the pool was frequented by a lot of Hollywood celebrity types, agents, managers, actors. Anyway, all their kids were there learning how to swim. And there was an agent that uh, took a shine to me. I was cute, extroverted, and I guess she thought I'd make a, a good candidate to become a kid actor. And uh, she kept after my mom to represent me. And uh, finally, my mom said, okay, let's see what happens. And uh, so I went out on some things. I was cast Earlier in my career as an extra, that's kind of pretty much how everybody starts. So just one in a bunch of kids. And uh, that happened to me also on a show called uh, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, uh, which was a well-known popular show back in the 50s that ran for about 14 years. In fact, it's the only show or sitcom that ran longer than My Three Sons. But uh, I was hired as an extra and for whatever reason. The uh, first episode I did with Ozzie and Harriet as an extra, he gave me a line to say and I guess I said it successfully and he went to my mom afterwards said, gee, I'd like to have him back and you leave your contact information. And true to his word from 1956 to about 1960, I probably did about three or four shows, uh, Ozzie and Harriet as a neighborhood kid till my three sons came along. And then by that point I was doing movies and, you know, different guest spots on different TV shows. So I had amassed a pretty good resume uh, just before my three sons started. I starred in a TV pilot called Skippy that uh, ended up not selling to TV, uh, but uh, was under contract. Uh, the producer director who did it was Jackie Cooper, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was probably yeah. besides Shirley Temple, 
the most famous child actor ever. In fact, he uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for Skippy. And uh, uh, when I met him, what happened was I was wandering around the lot when I wasn't in scenes on Ozzy and Harriet just to have something to do. And, you know, you'd go on to different people's sound stages and see what was happening. And one of the stages I walked on to, it turned out they had a horse there. And I followed the horse and the trainer out uh, into the back. And the guy said, hey, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm doing Ozzy and Harriet. He said, you want to feed the horse? So he gave me some carrots to feed the horse. Showed me how to brush the horse down. Well, turned out the horse was Mr. Ed. So uh, Whoa. I didn't know that at the time, but uh, that wow. was kind of fun. And so, yeah, that and I walked on to another soundstage where they had a dog, a basset hound, and was playing with him. And I'd come over occasionally. And uh, one of the times when I was there, this guy came up to me and started talking to me and inquiring who I was and why I was there. And, and uh, so, you know, my instincts were to say, gee, am I, am I in trouble? And he said, no, no, you're not in trouble. He said, gee, I'd like to meet your mom. So I thought I was in trouble. And anyway, he made me take him back over to the Ozzy and Harriet stage, stage five, to meet my mom. And uh, anyway, I kind of wandered off and they stood there talking for a while. And then about two months later, uh, the same guy was producing, directing me and Skippy. It turned out it was Jackie Cooper. So uh, that came about. And anyway, um, Skippy led to My Three Sons. I you know, had a nice reel of a TV series that I starred in and had my name above the title and had most of the dialogue and carried the show. And so the people that saw that were very interested in me when they were uh, starting up My Three Sons. Anyway, so I got cast in that and then I had to wait around till they cast everybody else except for Fred McMurray because the show was built around him. So it took a while, but we finally got William Frawley, the guy that played Bub. Uh, and then Tim Considine, who was, uh, he was part of the Mouseketeers Club. He was in Spin and Marty and the Hardy Boys back then. And uh, he was hired to play the older brother, Mike. And finally, uh, we were looking for a middle son. And they got the guy that was on a TV series back then called Fury with Peter Graves. And we started shooting. And then the next thing I knew, we weren't shooting anymore. And he was gone. And then they got another guy and we started shooting again. And then they didn't think that guy could do comedy. So they fired him. <laughs> and my mom knew this agent and said, you know, she called up uh, Mary Grady was her name, said, gee, they're looking for another Robbie. You should send Don down. And uh, he came down and auditioned. And ultimately we shot the uh, pilot with Don Grady, who became Robbie. And uh, that was the lineup. Then we finally had three sons and a pilot and, uh, Oh, yeah, the, the guy that couldn't do comedy, that turned out to be Ryan O'Neill. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so it was a few little missteps along the way. I, in addition to the show, in the first iteration, I'm not really being called the Douglases, Chip Douglas, Steve Douglas, Robbie Douglas. We were the uh, McPhersons, and on that third go-round, they changed the name to Douglas. has a better ring to it, Douglas, than McPherson. That just, yeah. I don't know, yeah. Yeah. How old are you when you get the job for My Three Sons? I was nine years old when we did the pilot. We did the pilot at the end of 1959 and um, waited around for a while. And, and then uh, I guess for them to make a decision on it. Of course, I think they'd already decided. Uh, this is primarily because of Fred McMurray's participation in it, which, you know, that sounds kind of boring now when I say it, but... When Fred McMurray came to TV to be Steve Douglas, 
it was uh, like unbelievable to have a star of that caliber going to do a TV show. I mean, he was a major, 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 major movie star. And everybody was like, why is this guy doing a TV show? Well, he had his personal reasons for doing it, but it would have been like maybe about eight, 10 years ago, Tom Hanks saying, I'm not going to do any movies anymore. I'm just going to do TV series. And everybody was like, what? <laughs> and uh, that's what Fred McMurray was. He was the highest paid actor at, at that time and done probably a hundred movies up to um, when My Three Sons came along. And he and his wife had uh, adopted a, a twins and yeah, they were, I guess probably about seven, eight years old by then. And, uh, you know, he didn't want to go on the road doing movies. You know, sometimes you're out there for two, three months at a pop, and next thing you know, your kids are in college. So he decided he wanted a regular job where he can go to work from eight to five, be home, spend the evening with his kids, his weekends with the kids. And then the shooting schedule, my three sons, was set up. So uh, he would shoot for about two or three months and then go away for about two or three months and spent the entire summer with his family and then would come back at the end. And, you know, we'd shoot out any episodes that hadn't been shot and did pick up shots for ones he was in, but they hadn't finished. And uh, that's how the producer got him to agree to be in the show. I was, like, watching the episode today where you... The neighbor or the girl down the street has a huge crush on Chip, and the chemistry that you and Fred McMurray have in that first few episodes is amazing. Yeah, yeah, the pilot was really cute. It was him. There was a girl that liked me. It started out that way, and yeah. I didn't like her because I, I don't think I quite like girls yet. They were just these clunky things that wanted to hold you down and kiss you. And um, but I got invited to a dance, and then I got a lecture from him that even though. I didn't really want to go. It was going to be good for me and to, you know, meet women and, you know, just socialize. But then he gets, so to speak, hoisted on his own petard because this woman who likes him, a divorcee, wants him to go out with her. And so Bub, I think it was, said, well, why don't you just take her and go with Chip, you know, to this dance and you can be with her. And he's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, so he, get, he gets roped into the same situation I'm in. And we go to the dance, and needless to say, I'm I'm ready to you know, kick the girl in the kneecap and get the heck out of there after about five minutes. And it doesn't look like he's having all that much fun with this woman. So we eventually just kind of split. <laughs> What's it like growing up on TV? Because my three sons lasted 12 years. Yeah, uh, it was we shot 12 years, 12 seasons. Uh, like like I was saying, making it the second longest running sitcom on TV. I think there's a few that have come to 12 now, but they don't have 380 episodes. Right, yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, ran a long time. And immediately in 72, 73, I guess, when it finally went off after they aired the last year's worth of uh, segments, it went into syndication uh, and from 73 through 85. It was on TV every single day, you know, uh, when they did what they call stripping, playing it over and over again. Um, and then from there, I think it was in 85, uh, Nick at Night came along and they had the idea of taking our old black and white episodes and putting them on TV and introducing them to a whole new crop of audience, which are pretty much the children of the original parents who watched the show with their kids. And uh, and then 10 years after that, they came along with TV Land, which was kind of what Nick at Night was. Nick at Night ran primarily from midnight to about six or eight o'clock in the morning. But then they started the 24-hour programming thing with old-time TV shows that the uh, networks just 
looked at that content and said, this is junk. You know, we don't show it anymore. Let them knock themselves out if they want. And I guess they struck a deal and, you know, TV land and Nick at Night uh, really, well, they basically showed that old time TV content could be very valuable. Uh, in fact, the guy that started the company that, you know, ended up owning uh, Nick at Night and TV land, a guy named Sum Sumner Redstone, made enough money of putting that on his little cable channel that nobody thought would succeed that he ended up buying the network that made it. Uh, he bought mm -hmm. CBS and with the pocket change left over, bought Paramount. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's golden and them are old residuals and old time TV shows. So, yeah. You know, who knew? And flash forward, it's uh, 60 years later, and My Three Sons has literally been on the air for 60 years, some way, shape, or form, primetime, cable, uh, you know, various independent channels. It's just literally never gone off the air. I wish they'd make a streaming service dedicated to old TV, because they have, they have channels, but you can't find Mr. Ed, you can't find My Three Sons on any of the streaming platforms, and I think that's a shame, because I want to... Well, they kind of come and go, yeah, that, that's what happens, I and mean, we were on after uh, TV Land, we've been on so many different, you know, the Ion channel, and uh, like Hallmark channel, all these different channels that, you know, popped up and were popular for a while, and peaked and you know then somebody else said i think we're on me tv right now so mm. uh there are there are hosts at the moment but uh you know at this point i think you can probably go to youtube and find every episode of my three sons it's the other they're finally all up yeah <laughs> and depending what year you see me i'm either you know eight or nine or i could be almost 23 i think so <laughs> you know I, that's what's funny when i meet kids because if they've only seen the younger episodes of me walking in the room and you know they're looking at this old geezer walking in and go well, that's chip what happened to him you know so i have two questions real quick stanley sure, um yeah so going back to fred mcmurray were you at all intimidated to work with him uh like when you first started the show or were you so new that you kind of maybe didn't even recognize that? You know what? It's not even that. It's just that you're, you know, when you're a kid, you're just not aware of anything. You have no real, I think, appreciation of people's status in the industry. You know, when you get older, you know, you suddenly realize, oh, my God, I'm in the room with the president or the president of CBS or whatever. And that can be intimidating. When you're a kid, you just treat everybody the same. You know, he was just okay. the guy that was on the show to me playing my dad and, you know, it wasn't like us in there. Going, oh my God, this is the guy was in Double Indemnity, The Apartment, uh, uh, the absent-minded professor, Kane Mutiny. You know, you, you just don't have those thoughts. So, and he was just, uh, you know, for the as big an actor as he was, he was just really the most down-to-earth guy you ever met. Uh, mm -hmm. I never really saw Fred lose his temper or have a you know, uh, histronics or a, a meltdown on the set about anything, you know, that's not to say there weren't problems, but, you know, he handled them in the most low key way. You know, he'd say something to the uh, director and see if they could get it resolved. If not, they would call the producer or call a writer down and, you know, they may disappear for about a half hour working on some dialogue that didn't make sense to him. And, uh, but you know, he always handled things I thought uh, with the utmost professionality. You described the shooting schedule uh, that was kind of a little bit, you know, fractured, for lack of a better term, when you were talking about Fred yeah. McMurray. Did that cause any type of problems with the, the crew or the cast if they had to 
wait for Fred to come back to do some pickup shots. Like I imagine the organization had to be top notch in order to make sure that everything fit together, right? Yeah, well, the people that produced the show, meaning, you know, the crew and the production crew that ran everything, you know, when you do films, even though even when you're doing feature films, they're not shot in order, any particular sure. order, you know, because of people's schedules or the availability of locations or just props sometime, whatever. So you're always shooting things out of order. So this was just kind of shooting things out of order on steroids because of Fred. <laughs> <laughs> the way it worked is, you know, in those days, too, we shot a lot more episodes per season. Uh, that's why we ended up with almost 400 episodes. Uh, you know, we do 39 episodes a year. So mm -hmm. you would have 39 original episodes, and then they would only take 13 of those episodes and rerun them. That That's all our reruns, uh, I guess, season would be, because if you added the 1339, there's your 52 weeks. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of shows originally that were never even seen a second time until uh, Nick at Night came along. Mm -hmm. But the way it would work was we'd have maybe 13 scripts uh, ready at the beginning of the season. Those are the ones we would dig into right away. And when Fred was there and available... It's not like he didn't work. He was in every single shot uh, during the day. Uh, we would shoot the master, uh, and then they would go immediately and get his close-up, or if he was in a two-shot, whatever it took to shoot him out of that particular scene. And then a lot of times they would skip over the other people's. Uh, if I was in it, you know, my close-up wouldn't be shot sometimes till you know, it could be six months later when mm -hmm. he was gone. So they tried to shoot out as much stuff with Fred as they could and did that for, like I said, about two or three months. He'd leave and then, you know, we'd shoot new stuff and scenes without Fred McMurray, but then we would also do pickups and go back to that scene. And a lot of times it'd just be, you know, me at the dining room table or at the kitchen table with, you know, a plate of eggs in front of me. And that's what I was eating in that scene that we shot three months ago. And you know, they just match my looks to where I was supposed to be looking for him, but he wasn't there. It was just the uh, the dialogue coach would usually read the off stage lines, or if she if it was a scene where I was looking up to him and he was standing up, they'd put her on an apple box because Fred was about six four, so <laughs> or we used to have this other thing to keep the eye line straight. They would hold up a mop. We used to call it Fred McMop. <laughs> you get the eyelids and go just look at the head of the mop and do your lines to to the mop you know so i'm very good when it comes to acting with mops now <laughs> should put me in uh what was it the uh i guess it was mary poppins or dick van dyke does the scene with the yeah. clean out the chimney with i'd probably be very good acting against that that mop or broom or whatever it was uh, did I read correctly that your brother had a role as well on My Three Sons? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Barry yeah. Uh, came along. You know, I started in the industry, like I said, when I was probably about, you know, six years old. And my little brother wanted to do what I did. So he followed in my footsteps. He's three years younger. So, you know, when I first started, he was still in my diaper practically. <laughs> but eventually caught on. Hey, this is a good gig if you can get it. And he wanted to, you know, do the same thing I was doing. And you know, he was equally as talented and looked very much different than me. You know, I had blonde hair. I looked like the pure Aryan race or my brother looked like, uh, you know, Mr. Moto or something. Peter Lorre, he had glasses, buck teeth. And so he had a completely different look, but you know, he was adorable looking and he, he looked like he'd be very intelligent. He was the original brain, the quintessential brain. 
And uh, he started working. And, you know, same thing happened for him. You know, he got some TV shows, did a couple pilots that didn't sell. He was in The Errand Boy with Jerry Lewis. I had okay. a great, great scene in that where those kids are asking Jerry Lewis to get the candy down off the shelf. They want like a, a I think a dime's worth of jelly beans. And he goes up and gets this humongous vase down and scoops out 10 cents. And he says to the little girl, do you, do you want these? And she says, do you want 10 cents? He goes, no. So he puts it back and goes, well, what do you want? And she goes, I want five cents worth of those. So he has to go up again and get them. And then Ford turns around and says to my brother, do you want five cents worth of these jelly beans? And my brother says, no. And so he puts them back and he says, okay. What do you want? He goes, I want 20 cents worth of those. <laughs> so that was the gag, something like that anyway. But yeah, he did a lot of movies. And, uh, you know, when he wasn't working, he would come down to the... Actually, we worked together before that on the Ozzy and Harriet show. Uh, okay. The very last episode of Ozzy and Harriet that I did, because by that point I... My parents had to tell Ozzy I got hired onto My Three Sons and was not going to be able to come back because it was on a different network. And those days they didn't allow such things. So, uh, but the very last episode I was in, uh, Barry got cast into it too. And uh, in fact, I think they actually called us by the same last name. So I guess that was supposed to identify that we were brothers. And so I left to do My Three Sons and uh, Barry basically took over the role I had whenever they needed oh. a neighborhood kid. It became Barry and he was on that show for about three, four years and did the same thing about, you know, three, four shows a year. He would do for the Nelsons and he was doing TV pilots. So by then the producers of My Three Sons were aware of them and, you know, he come down to the set to hang with me, uh, you know, sometimes. And I think they just got the idea, hey, you know, why not use Barry in something? So uh, they wrote it in that he was a neighborhood kid on My Three Sons, and slowly but surely, he was sort of, you know, uh, weaseling his way into the show, so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, he'd be in my classroom, which I never could figure that part out because I'm three years older than Barry, so either he was very intelligent or I was very stupid because we were in the same classroom, but that was TV, so go figure. Um, but then what happened on the show was Tim Considine, the guy that played the older brother, Mike, uh, decided he didn't want to come back the fifth year and wanted to move on with his life and gave notice. And uh, anyway, uh, they shot one, I think it was one episode with him where he got married and we went to the marriage and then we never saw Mike again. He just sort of slipped into the twilight zone, never wrote, never called. What a bum. Um, anyway, so they came up with this idea because the show was called My Three Sons. We needed three sons in a hurry. And uh, uh, Barry was right there and was kind of an obvious choice. And they had written a scenario where he was an adopted uh, kid, uh, actually a foster child. And his parents were supposedly leaving the United States and they couldn't take him. And he's suddenly up and available for adoption. So the Douglas family decides to adopt him and formally brought him into the family. And... On the side, uh, the little social worker that was handling the case was Vera Miles and Fred McMurray's character and her have a little flirtation. And um, if you miss those five episodes, you never know what happened to Mike and how this other guy got on the show. So, <laughs> well, you didn't have any... You didn't have any sibling rivalry, did you, while you were on set? We didn't. No, you know, the, the funny thing is, because we worked enough during the year that, um, you know, I think my parents thought maybe... You know, we shouldn't work when we're not doing My Three Sons, although we both did. Uh, you know, I ended up doing a movie called X-15 with Charles Bronson in between seasons one year. 
uh, back, it was introducing Mary Tyler Moore. So she was in it. Uh, Charlie Bronson was just starting to catch fire back right after that movie. I think he did The Great Escape and, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. also, uh, what was the other one he was in? Uh, Magnificent Seven that sort of solidified his career. But uh, And then the director was turned out, you know, he went on to have a huge directing career, but this was his first movie. And it's been a friend of mine for, God, I guess 60 some years of Richard Donner. Uh, mm -hmm. his first feature film and you know richard went on to do the omen and superman and all mm -hmm. the evil weapon movies uh great guy great director uh so yeah Oop, my watch just said something to me <laughs> <laughs> somebody's watch did um yeah so you know, we we did things in between and i ended up doing how the west was won between one of the seasons which turned out to be one of the quintessential westerns i don't know if you've ever seen it, it was shot in cinerama it was actually the last cinerama movie produced and it had everybody who was anybody in hollywood at that time was in this movie everybody mm -hmm. John Wayne, um, Jimmy Stewart, Gregory Peck, I mean, you name it, they were in it. Debbie Reynolds was the star of it. And uh, they play it almost every year at the Arclight uh, Cinerama Theater in Cinerama once a year. So uh, like my three sons, it's gone on and, and on and on and on and on. In fact, uh, over the years, because of the attrition rate of the movie, I was like, I'm the only one left alive in it. So. I've had the honor of introducing that film at the Arclight probably about five or ten times by now, but it's it's a great film too. But yeah, ma mainly we would go back to school, and and uh, unless we did do a movie or you know something would come up, but no, the, most of the time we'd go back to school. And unlike most of show business children uh, who went to a private school in Hollywood called the Hollywood Professional School, which catered to children that were you know tv series or working in the industry or whatever um you went to school there from nine to twelve and then you were done uh we had a tutor after the the series would end which was usually around the end of the year that would take us to february and then from february to when we'd start shooting again usually three or three or four months we'd go back to public school which was a <laughs> culture shock experience it'd be like if you were the beatles at that age and you know you got to work and then all of a sudden you had to go back to public school you can imagine what it would have been like it was yeah pretty horrendous but you know my parents go well we're sending you back there because you're gonna you know end up having to deal with real kids so you're gonna have to learn how to handle it you know where if you went to hollywood professional school you're just in with a bunch of your own ilk who you know, not to say that their heads were a little swollen by being in in show business, but you know, there's nothing like being with real kids. They'll knock you right off your pedestal and yeah. you know, keep you real. And you know, we, you learn how to deal with the real world. You know, how to manipulate kids so that they're nice to you. And you know, when I went back, either guys were my friends or they wanted to beat me up. You know, that's how it was. So it was good for getting girlfriends. I'll say that that was. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Stanley, you've also done uh, some directing, you've done some producing as well in your career. So if I could just maybe put you on the spot, if, if you were given an opportunity to do like a dream project, like Stanley, we want you to direct and produce this, what would it be? What would be a, a project that you would love to work on and have just, your name attached to? Oh, are you saying from films that got made that I didn't get to direct or of my own? 
in my uh, it doesn't matter doesn't matter anything yeah, I've got a, uh, you know i have a project actually there's one that i wrote too that i had some luck with it uh, years ago and it sort of uh became my calling card for a while and it, it got optioned uh, i think it was three or four different times uh at that time well it's called the tower and what the story was about it took place in 1938 and it's about some con men who sell the eiffel tower as scrap metal to german industrials right for world war ii when you know the krupps and other armament companies were buying up all the scrap metal and steel all over europe knowing the war was coming and it, it, it's uh you know uh, i guess you'd say an action thriller with a you know, dose of comedy in it and uh, a lot of things going wrong, a lot of twists and turns. But uh, that that script was lucky for me. You know, I had an option, made money off of it. I mean, almost made a living off of it there for a while, and um, got my first writing agent because of it. Uh, but it just ultimately didn't get made. It w it would have, when it was around being offered, it would have been a tough shoot. I, I you know when I look at it now, having worked as a producer knowing some of the nuts and bolts of that because it was a period piece so it had that as a strike against it it was i would say 95 percent foreign so you know it required shooting in paris so um you know that was strike two so but the story was so compelling everybody that read it you know loved the story and uh you know the problems that you would have had with it back in the era when i wrote it which was around 1980 um you know, there'd be no problem at all. You know, some kid out of a college class could probably erase wires and do some things right there at home on, on uh, After Effects to, you know, cure the problems you would have had back then that would have le legitimately taken a little bit of work to rotoscope things and all that. So yeah, it would be a nothing shoot. But yeah, it's a high, you know, high octane thriller and, you know, it has a lot of twists and turns with these con men who end up getting sucked into their own con, which isn't supposed to happen. And, you know, ultimately end up at the Eiffel Tower when it's ready to be exploded. <laughs> awesome. That sounds like a great script. That does. Fantastic. Absolutely. I got to ask, um, is a movie that I used to watch, well, that me and my friends would watch at summer parties in middle school and high school. Um, can you give me a quick story on Bikini Drive-In? <laughs> well, it would be very short because I think my per participation in it was very short. It was, I think we were mocking or had like Uncle Charlie supposedly in the car. You don't see him, but you hear his voice. And I've got some, or no, I think he's the one with the girl. And I'm up front in the car with some other girl. And we're like, hey, Uncle Charlie, could you knock it off? We can't hear the movie. I, I just, it was like a lark. You know, you're friends with different people in the industry. And, and uh, the guy that directed was a friend of mine said, hey, you want to just do this, you know, kind of, foolish scene in there and i said yeah i wasn't doing anything in fact that was shot now that i think about it over david carradine's ranch oh the part in the car i mean you couldn't really see much out there but that's where it was actually hmm. shot yeah we all we all help each other with our projects things go wrong or no i did a attack of the 60 foot centerfold i think it was called and a friend of mine who was a director called me and i I don't know what happened. They had an actor that got sick or bombed out. I don't know what it was. And he said, hey, do you think you could do this? And I'm like, well, I'm not really acting anymore. And he goes, can you, can you just do me a favor? I'm like, uh, well, what is it? You know, and he told me. And I said, yeah, okay. And I said, so when is it? And he goes, tonight. <laughs> so start, start shooting about two in the morning. And I'm like, oh, my God. what? Yeah. So I ended up in that because of that. I think we shot 
all my scenes out in like one night and uh you know you do what you can to help your friends and absolutely they should have given you a spot in cable guy since yeah yeah um that was kind of weird too because uh yeah it was somewhere and i was i think at that time having a dispute over some kind of residuals or something with cbs and in those days too if they used you in a you know production whether they used you or used to clip you they're supposed to call you and get your permission and and you sign off on it and you know negotiate a fee and i remember i somebody called me and said oh we want to use this clip you in the cable guy and i'm like oh wow great you know and of course i knew who jim carrey was so i was delighted about that i didn't know what they were going to do with it but uh so you know the guy made an offer to me and i go oh i said come on man this is the movie where jim carrey's getting 20 million dollars you know, to come back with a little bit more than scale on this this isn't like some you know like something being inserted into the TV screen that the Munsters are watching on some TV show. This is a $20 million movie. So I said, you know, come back with a different number and, you know, maybe we can negotiate something. I never heard back from the guy. So flash forward about a year later, I'm at Paramount. I think this was around the time they launched uh, TV Land. And uh, so I was there and some lady came up to me and said, oh, well, I just came from screening uh you know of the cable guy and you know you were so cute they had a clip of you in there and you know and i said oh wow well that's cool so i said well you know the weird part about it is nobody ever called me back to clear that that clip and the movie opens what'd you say on friday i go you better have somebody from your legal department call me. And this lady turned snow white and anyway i heard from somebody and we negotiated a much better deal than i would have ever imagined in fact the deal was so good I made more money off that cable uh, guy clip than I made off the entirety of my My Three Sons clips on cable for 20 years. Wow. Wow. So that tells you how little I made from My Three Sons or how much I got for one clip. <laughs> That's, wow. That's yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, that, that was pretty weird. But mm -hmm. I don't know what happened. I guess it fell between the cracks. And now it's all different now. Now they don't even have to call you. <laughs> and I'm like, what, excuse me? They don't have to call you anymore? And so I called the guild. She says, yeah, that's, we gave that away uh, at the last negotiation. So people can just use a clip of you. They don't have to call you to clear it. Then you have to tell you they're using it. And oh yeah, they don't have to pay you. Hmm. Go, well, that's really nice you. <laughs> Why do I need a union? I go, you know, that's almost like not having a union. But yeah, I called back to their legal department to see uh, if that was true and spoke to an attorney and he said, yeah, that was one of the things uh, we gave away. And I go, but I don't understand how you can negotiate somebody else's likeness away. Yeah. It seems like there's a copyright issue. I own my likeness. It's not for you to give away. Uh, and so I said, well, you know, that remains to be seen. You can say that and you can tell that to other producers who are ultimately going to use it, but till it gets taken to court and maybe there's a trial and there's a jury or a judge decides, I don't think you're right. But, and, I, and then I asked the guy, cause I wanted to put him on the spot. I said, so I said, you know, I'm doing a commercial right now. And um, I said, are you a good looking guy? And he said, what? And I said, well, are you, you a good looking guy? He goes, oh, well, I guess I'm, I'm, pretty good looking guy. I said, oh, well, that's great. 
I said, could you send me a picture of you? I said, because I'm doing a gonorrhea commercial next <laughs> week. And we're looking for some guy to be the gonorrhea guy. And I think I'm going to use you. <laughs> and the guy goes, I get your point. <laughs> and I says, yes, you get my point. Because if you can be, if, if it's for free for people to use, it will be abused. And that's what I'm talking about. That's why you can't do that. So mm -hmm. I haven't tested it yet, but I was happy to put the guy on the spot. Well, Stanley, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. This has yeah. been an absolute time. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Yeah, Where thanks for having me. What's that? Where can everyone find you online? Um, well, I have a website. It's stanleylivingston.com. And uh, I have to admit, I haven't been there in a while to update it. So it, probably going to be getting around to this since the COVID thing is here and I can't come up with another excuse. <laughs> and I've done quite a few things that I probably should put on there to update it since I last did. And then on the production side, I have uh, it's a company called First Team Productions. So if you go to firstteamproductions.com, uh, you can see uh, what I'm involved in, although everything right now is just on ice. Yeah. Like everybody yeah. else's thing because that COVID thing, you know, it's impossible to get COVID insurance. So you're on your own out there, and if somebody gets sick on one of your productions, or God forbid, dies, I, I, I don't even know legally what, you'd probably be in a world of hurt, so we've just been holding mm -hmm. back, doing anything, mm -hmm. or you know, moving forward on anything until we get a, a better grip on what whatever this is going to ultimately be about, or hopefully they'll come up with a vaccine, and that'll be the end of it, so people can work and not have to worry about getting, contracting something. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, pretty sad state of affairs. Yeah, absolutely. So all the links to Stan's uh, social medias and websites stuff will be in the description of this video. Thank you again, Stan, for coming on. It was an absolute honor. I love talking to you about. Oh, your thanks, Jason. Thanks. Yes, again. thank you. Thank Appreciate you very, it. very much. Yeah, you guys are great to talk to, and uh, we'll have to do it again. Okay. Hopefully, something.